Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. And welcome to our first podcast of 2021. We're back in lockdown. So I'm joined remotely by author and illustrator Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Oh, hello, David. We're not where we wanted to be. We're back in Zoomland, which is a suitable environment for meeting people all the same. Yes, we had grand plans to get out into the snow up to Bakuskidor, but uh, on hold for now. And we're doing the next best thing, Mark. We're embracing our newfound Zoom freedom to go all over the county. And rather unusually for us, we're not going by foot. We're going by motorhome. <laughs> yeah, this is it. A really good friend of mine. Actual fact, the very first friend I made when I moved to Cumbria 20 years ago was Richard Harris. He was newly retired as a local journalist, but he's kept up a momentum for writing and exploring and meeting people. So Richard has published his latest book called Bongo Nights 2, an A to Z of the Lake District. And a bongo, for people who don't know Mark, well, what is the bongo? It's a Mazda, I think, a camper van, but it enables people to explore in a far more adventurous way than many of these great motorhome kind of vehicles, and it suits Richard very well. And the theme behind his book, this is his second book about travelling in his beloved Bongo, is he attempts to find a location beginning with every letter of the alphabet within the Lake District. So our podcast today is him picking a selection of his favourite spots around the National Park and talking about his adventures there. So let's go and meet Richard. Welcome, Richard. It's a special delight for me to share the company of a, of a good friend. First of all, where do you come from? I was born in South Devon, uh, near Sidmouth, but that was only because my mum was staying with her parents at the time, because my dad was away at college. So I was born there, spent the first three months of my life in South Devon, then moved back to the family home in Birmingham, of all places. And I spent four years in Birmingham before they moved to Somerset. And I actually think of myself as coming from Somerset, because that's where I grew up. That's where my happiest memories are as a child. Went to boarding school, which I'll gloss over. And when I left school, I had not the slightest idea what I wanted to do. I left school uh, sort of floundering with no idea of what my future would be until I almost by accident, uh, got a job as a reporter on the local paper in Western Supermare. And to my astonishment and everybody else's, I loved it. Uh, moved to a much bigger paper in Bristol, then moved to another paper in Nottingham when, uh, when we got married to my wife, Trisha, who you know. Um, I spent 18 very happy years in Nottingham, 
uh, and moved my way up from a nobody to deputy editor on one of the biggest papers in the country. Once you get to sort of one off the top, you think, well, I wonder if I could be editor. So I got a job as editor in Carlisle, on two newspapers in Carlisle. And that showed me that that was one stage further than I should have gone because I was hopeless. <laughs> I managed to hold down that job as editor for three and a bit years before they found me out and sacked me. When I was sacked, it was a wonderful experience because I got a blank sheet of paper. I could have done anything at that time. I was in my early 40s. Uh, but in the end, I realised that what I really wanted to do was journalism again. Um, so I went back to going out with a notebook and a pen. I uh, spent most of my time for the last 20 years of it um, in court in Carlisle as a court reporter. And um, I retired when I hit 65. And since then, I've been enjoying living up here in Cumbria, a beautiful part of the world. And well, that's where you find me now. Absolutely. And I would say, which is pertinent to Country Stride, that when you got sacked, you'd actually just come back from walking the coast-to-coast walk. I'm glad you mentioned that because I do like to portray myself as somebody who doesn't like walking, um, which is not true. In the fortnight before I got sacked, Trish and I did the coast-to-coast walk from St. Bees to Robin Hood's Bay, and that was the first physical challenge I'd ever set myself and accomplished in my whole life, which meant that when I finished it, I was absolutely on top of the world. So when I went back to work on the Monday morning and found I had no longer got a job, it was just a minor inconvenience. I was on top of the world <laughs> and, and, and nothing was going to beat me. The fact that I was unemployed was, uh, I, I just didn't care. Anyway, a little bit of the topic of today is, is your engagement with story collecting and your vehicle. My vehicle is a bongo. That is not my pet name, though. That is actually what it is like a transit. If I had a Ford Transit, it would be a transit. Basically, it's, it's a Mazda, and it's a, a bongo camper van. It's got the distinction of being the first vehicle ever designed and built to be a camper van. All the others are designed as vans and then converted. The bongo in Japan was designed as a camper van for business people, travelling salesmen. Uh, a mobile offices for them. For my 60th birthday, I discovered that Tricia had been saving up secretly uh, to buy me a camper van. She said, well, you know, go online and see what sort of van you think you might like. And I searched the internet and came up with this vehicle called a Bongo, which I'd never heard of before. We purchased one in Kilmarnock in Scotland. And it, 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 it's, it sounds a bit of an exaggeration, but it, to be honest, it changed my life. Marvellous. Yes, and this uh, has given you another lease of life because it's given you a way of personalising your quest to learn about places and uh, discover details that you wouldn't otherwise find if you just had a little day trip. We both used to like going off in the bongo for, for the odd nights or even a holiday. And we decided we'd go to the south of Cumbria, which was a part of our home county that we didn't know at all. So we ended up in a camp, little campsite near Broughton in Furness, and it was magical. It was nothing at all special, apart from the fact that it was a nice part of the world, a uh, nice place to go for a walk, a nice pub, 
and totally relaxing. And as the day went on, and the evening went on, this idea came into my head. Wouldn't it be fun to do something like this every week? And that soon became, it would be nice to do this one night a week for 52 consecutive weeks. Totally random uh, scattergun approach, you know, unplanned, uh, but it was wonderful. And I quickly realized by about week two or three that I should be writing a book about this. So that was my first book called, with enormous imagination, Bongo Nights, um, and which I did largely for my own benefit, uh, because I knew that in my old age, I would be able to look back and, and relive this, this year, um, which is why I had the idea of doing another one, which equally imaginatively I called Bongo Nights 2, and that was my A to Z of the Lake District which is a book that, again, I published just last month. Well, well, there we are. Bongo Nights 2 and A to Z of the Lake District. What sort of ground rules did you give yourself? I have a set of rules that I have in the back of my mind, uh, which are important because the sort of places that I go to are wild camping places, not on campsites and not in car parks. Uh, So I have to be very careful that I don't go somewhere where I'm not welcome. First rule is... If there's a sign saying no overnight camping or no overnight parking, then I don't go there. I move on to somewhere else. Um, I'm always very careful not to leave any trace that I've been there, not even a tire mark if I can help it. I never park within sight of a house, and I never park within sight of another camper van, which is very important to me because the whole point of my bongo nights is basically solitude, because I like my own company. I don't make any noise, I don't light any fires, and this one always surprises people. I, I always take a bin bag with me so that I can collect any litter in my chosen place, uh, so that actually I always leave a place tidier than it was when I got there. And I think that's important, because we don't have any right to park in these places Uh, So I think it's incumbent upon us to look after the environment as best we can. You're a bit of a womble then. Uh, Indeed, yeah, a four-wheeled womble. Uh, But when when it comes to the A to Z, uh, the only new rule that I set myself was that each night the place I parked in would have to be within the Lake District National Park. So it would be nice to make a little bit of a start on... Your first one, which I think was Erton. Not that Erton is alphabetically the first one, but actually I think it's an interesting one as a lead-off. Yeah, Erton is a good example because it illustrates why I love going off in the bongo as much as I do. Because there is absolutely nothing, as far as I could find, special about Erton. Uh, But it, it turned into one of my best bongo nights. For people who don't know, Erton is... Uh, towards the west of the Lake District. And in fact, I've got you to thank for this because I was looking for somewhere that began with I and I couldn't find anywhere. I phoned you up and said, where can I go? And you said, Erton. And uh, I actually established there's no village called Erton, but there is a kind of loose area. And there's a pike, Erton Pike, 
and it's there that I parked in the uh, Forestry Commission car park, beautifully out of the way, very quiet, hardly any passing cars. This was the pattern of my bongo nights. I would park there, I would have some kind of a meal, I would go for a walk, and there's, it was, my, my plan was to walk to the top of Burton Pike, which is only, uh, it's 751 feet above sea level, so by my standards that was a big hill, by yours it was flat. And I came back to the bongo and played my guitar for a bit, listened to the radio for a bit, and these, these are all the things that became part of my bongo nights. And um, because it was so unexceptional, it was exceptional. Does that make any sense at all? Um, uh, and and I, I woke up in the morning. I heard this strange noise outside the van and looked out, pulled the blind back, and there was a, a squirrel within uh, two or three feet of the side of the van uh, uh, eating, eating nuts from the feeder, which I hadn't noticed before. And then I, I looked around and... There were about half a dozen feeders, bird feeders, animal feeders, hanging from trees. But I, I was still sort of puzzling what all this was about when an old lady came up in a car. She was wonderful in every way. She must have been 80 at least. Uh, but she told me that um, for, for the last five years, every morning at 8 o'clock, seven days a week, she had come to, to feed the wildlife in this place. I thought she was going to tell me off because when she pulled in in her car, she looked at me as I was sitting in the van eating my, my breakfast, bacon, egg, and all that sort of stuff. And I thought she was going to come over and tell me that I had no business to be there. <laughs> but she came over with a big smile on her face and told me what she was doing. So I said, well, you obviously know this part of the world. I want to go for a walk. I'd be, I've done the hill. Where, where shall I go? She suggested I should go head into the woods, which were on the other side of the road from where I was parked. Uh, she said, you want to go to Parkgate Tarn uh, because it's a magical little tarn. She said, uh, you won't see anybody else there. You'll just see the birds and animals. Um, and so I headed there, and it was exactly as she described it. It was beautiful, secluded, totally silent apart from the birds. And, uh, and I sat there uh, for, it must have been about half an hour. Uh, and then I looked at my map and thought, well, actually, this church that I vaguely got in my mind was not a million miles away. So I set off over the fields and found that was another little gem. You won't find these places in any guide, possibly even not even your excellent guides, Mark. Uh, I've always been obsessed with ships, so I was delighted to find there was a, a tombstone there to a guy called Daniel Brocklebank, who I knew was one of the founders of the Brocklebank shipping line, which went on to become the White Star shipping line, which became Cunard. So in, in this church in the middle of a field in a wild part of Cumbria, you'd got the beginnings of one of the biggest companies of the early 20th century. It turned out this was typical of Bongo Nights and the way they developed uh, in an undiscovered part of Cumbria, uh, seeing wildlife, seeing landscape, and meeting some lovely people. And it's the people who made most of my bongo nights. Well, Richard, we've just been to a, a very lovely, delightful location. Uh, another of the places that I recommended, I, I believe, has a far more grisly connotations, and that was Overwater. 
Yeah, Overwater, um, which is a small town a few miles north of Keswick, uh, near Bassenthwaite, which is better known. I only went there because it began with O and I couldn't find anywhere else. Um, but on the night I went there, I think it was in the middle of December, and it was the coldest I've ever been in a, on a bongo, bongo night. Um, not even the big pile of duvets and blankets and thick sweaters was enough to keep me warm. But the benefit of that was I had to get out in the middle of the night just to walk around a bit uh, to warm up. And it was the most spectacularly clear night. I have never seen so many stars. It was absolutely wonderful. And again, this is another thing about bongo nights. You end up somewhere dark um, and you see the stars and you hear the owls and you hear the birds and you hear the odd animal as well. Uh, what you don't hear is you don't hear a sound of human habitation. Anyway, Overwater is a, a small lake. And I walked all the way around the lake, which was an interesting walk. And that ended up at a place called Overwater Hall, which is now a hotel that used to be a kind of miniature stately home. And um, always when I go to places in the Bongo, I do a little bit of research on the internet. And I found out um, Overwater was the scene of a particularly nasty murder in, I think it was uh, 18, 1814. And it was owned then by a, a very successful businessman who fancied himself as a kind of lord of the manor. And he'd made his fortune in the West Indies. And he came back and he set himself up as a sort of Mr. Big in the area. Uh, and all was going well until one night a woman turned up at his door and she was his mistress from his days in Jamaica. I suspect she'd been his slave. Anyway, she was also the mother of his child and she, she demanded money for the upkeep of their child, um, which is not what you expect to come knocking on your door and come there <laughs> in, in the middle of the night. Anyway, he pretended to be glad to see her. And he invited her out in a boat on his lake, which was Overwater Lake, and threw her overboard. And unfortunately for him, she could swim. So she climbed back onto the boat, and he then pulled out his sword and chopped her arms off and threw her overboard again, being fairly confident that this time she wouldn't be able to swim. And he then went back to his wife, in the big house and carried on as if nothing had happened. Uh, now, we're told that this became well-known in the local community, but nobody dared say anything against it. And he went on living as the local much-respected squire. Uh, he was an old man when he died, and even though everybody knew what had happened, he was never charged, he was never even investigated. That, again, is typical of a bongo night. You, you go somewhere where you think there's really nothing special about this place. Sort of turn up that you're there at the scene of a murder. Amazing. And then you go to somewhere like, let's say, Pooley Bridge. Altogether different. Pooley Bridge is one of these places that I love and hate. It's all the things I don't like about the Lake District. You have far too many people bustling about, uh, sort of cheap knickknacks and tat in the shops and yet yeah, I love Pooley Bridge uh, in some ways because 
it's a kind of gateway. From where I live, it's a gateway to the lakes. Once I get to Coolie Bridge, I know that I'm on the verge of Oldswater. And Oldswater, I adore. I think it's by far the nicest lake. And I spent a lot of happy times there. Also, in these last few years, I, I've come to admire Coolie Bridge because of the way they fought back after Storm Desmond. Storm Desmond um, wiped out an awful lot of places in the Navy Street. But Pooley Bridge was the only one that actually made me cry. Um, I remember my wife and I were sitting here, it was a Sunday afternoon, and we were listening to local radio about the devastation that was going on all over the county and in Carlisle. Fortunately, not here in the village that I did it. Um, and and it, was, it was really, it was quite upsetting. But then we heard that the bridge at Pooley Bridge, which was a kind of icon of all that's best about the electric. It's beautiful, uh, what, 300-year-old stone bridge um, had just been washed away. It suddenly became Poulino Bridge. Poulino Bridge. Trisha and I were sitting here, and we both ended up in tears. The fact that it, it was gone was a symbol of the damage that it was doing to our home county, and, and we were devastated. Um, but since then, the villagers pulled together, it's actually come back better than ever. And they have just opened in the last couple of months this fantastic um, new bridge. They haven't attempted to replicate the old one. It's a wonderful single-span stainless steel thing. Not, I don't know what you think about it, but I think it is in its way just as beautiful as the old one. And again, I am obviously an emotional type because the first time I saw that, uh, tears came to my eyes as well. Yeah, a lot of my bongo nights, tears come to my eyes for one reason or another. Talking of tears, and of course the word tear in Cumbrian dialect is expressed in the word tarn. Tarn means tear originally, a small pool of water. Now this reminds me of Tarn Moor. This is one of those magical places that you discovered, Richard, which had a tremendous impact on you. Yeah. Tarn Moor um, is a wild piece of moorland towards the east edge of the Lake District. You get to it by going through Penrith, um, sort of around a little lane that appears to be leading nowhere. Uh, but once you get there, there's this huge expanse of moorland and sky, and the sky is always full of, of skylarks. Years ago, I had a very happy night spent in the bongo park there and i remember on that day i got up very early and went for a walk and i headed west from where i was parked along a path that eventually took me to a view over oldswater uh, and again oldswater is my favorite lake and that is my favorite view of it because you walk along this path and then slowly, Oldswater emerges from underneath you. Uh, the further you go, the better view of it you get. And I always liken it to the old cinema organs, where the organ used to come up from the floor uh, for the old side of movies. And that's the impression I get of Oldswater coming up from the valley beneath me. And that is, I've done it many, many times now. And every time I do it, 
my eyes fill with water. If I want to go to the Lake District but can't decide where to go, Tarnmore and the walk and that view, that's what I choose. And Tarnmore actually was the last place I went to before the first lockdown. We knew the lockdown was coming inevitably. Um, so Trisha and I uh, decided to have one last uh, trip down to the lakes. And we went to Tarnmore uh, to do that walk, uh, to hear the skylarks. But it was filled with foreboding because we had some idea what was coming. Um, and it was also the first place we went back to, the two of us. We went back there after the lockdown was lifted. That was our first choice. As soon as lockdown is released, there's a sudden change and people come to the Lake District and many come in motorhomes and camper vans and there became quite an issue that started to become quite a topic of concern, uh, both nationally and certainly locally. Have you got a feeling for that, Richard? Yeah, it was very difficult, that, because it was something that, that I loved doing and as I've already explained, I have my uh, rules that I set myself, uh, like leaving no mess and so on. I think the overwhelming number of camper vanners are as responsible as I like to be. It's just a few who give us a bad name. But anyway, that aside, um, yeah, it was very difficult because I have loved, for years, I've loved going off in my camper van. I've loved the, the freedom that it's allowed me to have. Uh, access to places that I wouldn't normally have gone to. And then suddenly I was made to feel very guilty for wanting to do such a thing. For years and years and years, uh, camper vanning has been accepted in the Lake District and in anywhere uh, as just something that, that people are entitled to do. In fact, it's not legal anywhere, and it never has been, because every part of England is owned by somebody. I and people like me don't have any right to park our vehicles or pitch our tents on, on their land. Um, we've always done it, and the landowners have accepted it, and the National Park Authority have turned a blind eye to it, as have the police. It's, it's, it's one of these good old British things, we won't bother you if you don't bother us, sort of thing. But... After the lockdown, so many vans came to the Lake District, it became unsustainable. I realised that things had gone beyond a certain point when I heard that, I think it was 118 vans had been found one night in or near Buttermere. <laughs> because of, of this sudden influx of vans, uh, the National Park Authority decided to invoke a bylaw which had been in existence for for decades which everybody including themselves had turned a blind eye to and that banned spending nights in campervans so the the national park uh, enlisted the police to move people on camping of any sort in the lake district wild camping my first thought i admit was they can't do that. They have no right to stop me doing something that I've been doing for years. Uh, but that feeling lasted only about five minutes. Um, and I, I realised that my desire to take my camper van into the lakes was far outweighed by my desire 
to keep the Lake District beautiful and unspoiled. So I, I had to accept that, uh, for at least for a short time, I, I couldn't do it. Uh, so I, I kept away from the Lake District for, for months, for many months. It's current uh, year 2021. People will be coming again with their motorhomes, camper vans, and the issue will still be top of the agenda. How do you envisage a better message could be put across? Um, the short answer is I, I don't really know. But I think it's, it's the same old problem with the Lake District. People head for the honeypot places. And one thing about my bongo nights is it certainly made the point to me, and I hope to anybody who's sensible enough to read my book, um, um, there are wonderful places in the Lake District where you can go and you don't see a soul. You don't see another human being. You don't see another camper van. If I was talking to somebody, say, coming up from Manchester with a camper van, I'd say, you know, don't, don't go to Keswick or Windermere. Go, go to Urton. It's just as beautiful. It's just you won't see any people there. So I, I think we somehow need to disperse not just camper vanners, but people in general. The Cumbrian coast is gorgeous, but you don't get many people there. So tell if, if they've got to come to Cumbria, choose somewhere a bit more imaginative than, than the honeypots. Absolutely. So you've got places uh, that, that still were new to you all the time, uh, somewhere like Cleetamoor and that vicinity. Yeah, now Cleetamoor is a place um, which I, I heard of as soon as I moved up to Cumbria 30 years ago. And it's the sort of place that, if it came up in conversation, it was as if you were talking about um, something very unfortunate that's happened, oh dear, or the or Their voices would drop, they'd shake their heads. It's got this reputation of being something of a dump. And because of that, I've always had a soft spot for it. It's a, it's a bit like supporting the lower league team in the FA Cup. I always had this soft spot for Cleetamore. I've never really been there before. But when I came towards the end of my A to Z, um, I spotted that there's a place called Waterside, which is near Cretamore, and it is just, and I mean just within the Lake District National Park, which is what it had to be for the Bongo night. I satisfied myself by parking at Waterside within the National Park, and then probably the only person who'd ever parked there and then walked away from the Lake District, and I walked up to Cretamore. And what a fascinating place it is. I would recommend Cretamore to anybody because the only thing wrong with Cretamore is it, is it needs some money. Its poverty almost makes me ashamed to have a bit of money. There's so many aspects of Cretamore. The one, one that fascinated me was that it was just about the first place in Britain where there was sectarian violence. Now, I had no idea of this interesting history. This came about because in the early 1800s, I think it was, or mid-1800s, they discovered uh, iron ore and a bit of coal near Cretamore. And um, suddenly, Cretamore became quite... It, it was a bit like the, the Klondike. In 1841... Cretamore had a population of 763. Within 30 years, it had got a population of 10,000. 
uh, most of those, that incoming nine and a half thousand odd, were Irishmen. Uh, they were fleeing the potato famine and they came over to Crete Moor because they knew there was work there to be done in the mines. And most of those were Catholics. Now you can imagine what thousands of Catholics moving into a fairly insular place like West Cumbria would be like. Um, the Protestant natives didn't take kindly to it. And there, there was ill feeling between the two factions, stoked by a guy called William Murphy, a passionate Irish Protestant. And he came over and, and he incited the Protestant people to turn on the incoming Catholics. In the late 1884, the Protestants had a marching bands that you see in Belfast, celebrating the Battle of the Boyne. Uh, Well, they marched through the Catholic quarters of Crete Moor, and the Irish miners uh, attacked them, uh, feeling that they'd been provoked. They attacked them with fairly um, basic weapons, and the Protestants, who were armed with guns and cutlasses and pikes, retaliated. Um, so there was mayhem on the streets. One young lad was shot and killed. As I walked around Creedmoor and sort of visualised this, I thought, you know, this is a, I mean, it's, it's not something they want to boast about, but it's an important part of their history, which most of us don't know about. And in fact, um, I also discovered that Creedmoor um, is, is known in some circles as Little Ireland. If you continue to walk around Creedmoor, you notice that it's got a, really enormous Roman Catholic church. If I chanced upon that, I thought, well, what is a place like Cleese Moor doing with a church like that? And this church has even got uh, a grotto, a bit like Lourdes, and that was built in the 1920s by the the Catholic priest decided he needed uh, something to keep his menfolk um, employed because they'd all lost their jobs with the collapse of the mining industry. So he got them to build this grotto in the in the grounds of the church, which he wanted to set up as a as an alternative to Lourdes. So people would come on, on pilgrimage to Cleeton Moor of all places. The earlier mention of the word Erton, which meant Irishman's farm. Is that so? Yes. But even without the sort of Catholic Protestant thing, Cleeton Moor, if you go into the middle of Cleeton Moor, the sort of the town square is delightful. It's, it's got this really beautiful um, wrought ironwork. Maybe I've got too vivid an imagination, but I thought, you know, if you take this to, say, somewhere in France, uh, where the sun shines, people would be sitting out there in uh, open-air cafes, uh, having a really good time, and uh, there'd be lots of colour and life. As it is, as I say, uh, poor old Cleta labours under this reputation of being just a bit of a dump. One important thing about it, um, I spent uh, a long time walking the streets of of Cretamore and uh, there's a fantastic maze of footpaths and cycleways built uh, where the old railways used to be serving the mines. And I met a lot of people and in Cretamore, every person who I met smiled and said hello. And I thought that was lovely. Um, you could walk around Ambleside or Keswick or anywhere else, in fact, in the language, and you won't get that kind of reception. 
would suggest. Well, we'll leave dear Peter Moore and we'll go back to a far more sequestered little spot. Some of the countryside itself has visited not too long ago, about a year ago, I think now. Nibthwaite at the lower end of Coniston Water. Yeah, Nibthwaite, um, again, it, this is a place that I don't think I'd ever heard of. And I think I have you to thank because I, I couldn't think of anywhere interesting that began with an N that, that wasn't one of the obvious places. And you told me about Nibsweight, and it was a place I, I had to look it up on the map to find out where on earth it was. And that was a delightful place. Thank you very much. I'd, I'd been to Coniston plenty of times before. Uh, I'd never been on that side of Coniston water before. And um, it was like entering a whole new world uh, because Coniston, on the, the west side of Coniston, is, is obviously busy, very popular with tourists, lots of pubs, cafes, and, and, and all that. The eastern side, I discovered, is so remote. It was wonderful. And the great thing, of course, about, about a bongo, as opposed to a motorhome, uh, is that a bongo is small enough to go anywhere, even on that funny little road along the eastern side of Coniston Water. And, of course, John Ruskin lived it on the east side of Coniston Water as well, didn't he? I passed his house on the way down. I came down through uh, Hawkshead. I'd been to Hawkshead before, but after Hawkshead, uh, I was in a world that I'd never explored before. And I, I decided that I would actually explore further. So I went down into Nibthwaite Village, which is where Arthur Ransom used to go for his holidays as a child. Now. I've never, and I've still never, I'm ashamed to say, read anything by Arthur Ransom, which is strange because as a kid I was obsessed with ships. So you would have thought that uh, somebody uh, writing about boating in the Lake District would appeal to me. But, uh, but I, I only like ships with funnels. Uh, but even so, I was interested enough to find out a little bit about him and about how he spent his holidays there and why he wrote his books. Um, but the thing that I loved best of all about Nibthwaite was that it was where a really top-notch author had spent a lot of his time, but there was absolutely nothing there to capitalise on. There was no signposts, there was no uh, information boards, possibly even on the other side of Coniston Water. Um, there would have been a visitor centre and a signpost saying, you know, this way to the house that he used to spend his holidays in, pictures and souvenir stalls. But at Nithwaite, there was absolutely nothing. There's, there's hardly even anywhere to park a car. In Coniston, it's all about the bluebird. Yeah. But there's no uh, Amazons at Nithwaite. There's nothing. And, and I, I found that delightful. I did find somewhere to park the bongo. And I walked down to the jetty, which I had worked out is the one within his books. In, in the field on the way to the jetty, there's this figure, uh, this statue, sculpture type thing, which is by, I now know, was by Anthony Gormley. He's the guy who did um, Angel of the North and, and various other sort of very famous uh, statues and sculptures all over the place. Uh, but there is one of his works standing in a field at Nibthwaite with no explanation, nothing. They seem there to be determined 
not to cash in on anything that they got. And, and, and I loved that. I think I, I spent that whole afternoon walking around, driving around with a smile on my face because it was, it was so unexpected. And, and I had a peaceful night back in the bongo with this lovely view of the lake ahead of me, uh, undisturbed by anybody or anything. And the next day, I thought it would be quite fun to explore more of the Arthur Ransom places and ended up at Rusland Church, which is where he and his wife are buried. And um, again, it's a church really in the middle of nowhere. And he chose it apparently because he, it was the most peaceful place that he knew. And he wanted to spend eternity in, in that beautiful, peaceful place. I got to the church. There was no sign, you know, this way to Arthur Ransom's grave. Uh, absolutely nothing. And, and I, I found my way to it and, and stood there. And I, I thought, there's, there's something a bit weird about this. And eventually I worked out what it was. It was total silence. There was not a sound. No cars, no human voices, no distant tractors, no sheep. Not even any birds, not even any any wind whistling in the trees. And I actually, this may sound stupid, I stopped breathing. So I, I stood there at the side of Arthur Ransom's grave, uh, holding my breath. And I think possibly for almost the first time in my life, I could hear absolutely nothing at all. You mentioned solitude as being such an integral element of the whole experience for you? It's certainly a vital component. It's not the only thing I look for when I go off in the Mongo. Strangely, I also look for the company of other people because part of the joy is bumping into people and finding that they're interesting uh, and lovely and inspiring sometimes. But solitude, there is absolutely nothing to beat uh, sitting in the bongo with not another sound or not another human sound. It's a time to sort of rejuvenate myself in a way, sort of lost in my own thoughts with nobody to disturb me. It makes me sound like a miserable old devil. But um, I do like people, honestly. <laughs> but I also do enjoy my own company and I enjoy the opportunity to be on my own in a beautiful place. So in a sense, what you're doing with these bongo nights is stepping out of your everyday life. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, every time I leave this house to go off in the bongo, it, it's a little adventure. Uh, and obviously, at my age, you've got to accept adventure where you find it. Um, it's, it's a little adventure because I don't really know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm going to do when I get there. I don't know who I'm going to meet. And all those things have a habit of turning into something really quite exciting and something that I will always remember. We've had such a wonderful suite of locations. How about Martindale? Well, Martindale on the eastern shore of Oldswater is, is one of my favourite out-of-the-way places. Most visitors don't go there. In my mind, it will always be the place I go to 
to listen to the stags rutting in October time. Uh, and it's very fortunate that it has one of the best places to park a bongo overnight in the whole of the Lake District. This is another tears in the eyes type job. I walked into the valley and it was echoing with this wonderful sound of, of stags. You could see them silhouetted uh, up on the hillside. It was wonderful. So I, I walked further up the valley and uh, I just sat there on a rock listening and watching. If there's anybody out there who hasn't done that, I would recommend that. If you've got time, uh, set off very early in the morning, get there before the sun comes up. And it is an experience you will never forget. Um, but if you can, go there on the day that I'm not going there because I won't go see you. Because I, <laughs> I like to have these places to myself. That is only half of Martindale, as I discovered. I, I thought that's what uh, all I was going to get in Martindale. But I left the stags at about uh, half past 10, 11 o'clock in the morning, which left me the whole day to do something with. So I thought I'd go and have a look at the new church opposite where I'd spent the night in the Mongo. That was a particularly emotional visit for me because in that church, there's a beautiful stained glass window. It's looking down onto a warship as if the viewer is, is a bird looking down. So you've got the full, full length of the ship. And that's a memorial to a guy called William Hugh Parkin. I did know a little bit about this because um, the local landowning family always used to be the Parkins of that side of Oldswater. And this family always called their firstborn males William Hugh. And in fact, uh, William Hugh VII is a friend of mine. So I, I got some kind of personal involvement. And the story of, the, of this window goes back to the Second World War. It's a memorial to my friend Bill's grandfather, William Hugh Parkin V, who was a pilot, a naval pilot in the Second World War. He was one of 1,500 men who died when the aircraft carrier they were on, HMS Glorious, um, was sunk off Norway. There's always been a bit of a mystery about this. The Parkin family still don't know quite what the story was. For some reason, HMS Glorious turned for home from Norway to come back to England, and it did so without its usual escort. The Admiralty regulation said it should have had a couple of destroyers, I think possibly even a battleship as well, uh, to escort it wherever it went. But it came home, it started heading home without them. Now, legend has it that that was because the captain had fallen out with some of his senior officers and he wanted to get them home quick to court martial. Whatever, this ship, totally undetected, nearly totally undetected, started heading for home. And it sailed straight into the German fleet and was sunk. And even though 900 of the crew managed to take to the lifeboats and actually survived the sinking, uh, because there was radio silence, they left these 900 crewmen in the lifeboats uh, to their fate. And they all died, including William Hugh Park in the fifth. It seems so strange to me as I stood there 
partly because I felt personally involved because William Hugh Parking, the seventh is a mate of mine, but in a beautiful, peaceful place like Martindale, the top of a lovely pass where it's so quiet, a memorial to something like that. It's, it's, it's not what you expect to see. Uh, but yet again, it's an illustration of how my bongo nights can turn into something much more than I was expecting. Well, that's a wonderful invocation, Richard. I've really loved it. Uh, I think we've come round to the quickfire questions phase of our journey on this podcast. So, Richard, what was the best night in the bongo? Um, the best night, I think, would have to be the night I spent uh, in the middle of winter at the bottom of the Honister Pass on the way to Buttercup, just where the valley opens up a bit. There's plenty of places to park. Uh, I knew I was safe. I knew nobody was going to chase me away. The, and I knew that um, when, the morn, when the sun came up in the morning, it would be shining on the hills with just a little bit of snow on the top um, to make it look like something out of a beautiful calendar. Um, what was your favourite bongo pub night? Favourite, uh, let's go back to Nibsweite. In the evening of Nibsweite, uh, I went to um, Arthur Ransom's favourite pub, which was the Red Lion in Lowick, is that how it's pronounced? Mm -hmm. um, which was, it's the sort of pub you walk in, everybody smiles at you, people talk to you, the beer was good, the food was nice, they had a log fire, some lovely people in there to talk to. I remember that one particularly fondly. Right. Now, you're on the road. The whole purpose is to get somewhere in the vehicle. Have you a favourite Cumbrian road? Oh, yeah. It's got to be the Hard Knock Pass. One, because it's a fantastic road to drive on. The landscape, the scenery is, is so exciting. It's exciting to drive. And I've also got the satisfaction of knowing that uh, I wouldn't be able to do it in anything much bigger than a bongo. Motorhomes are out. It's a perfect road for the bongo to show just what a versatile little vehicle it is. So, on all your travels, uh, what do you feel defines Cumbria? Uh, for me personally, it would be the opportunity to find solitude um, in a way that you probably can't get in many places in this country. No, you're absolutely right. Cumbria's got a certain magic, and for all the honeypots and places that people go to in their great numbers, actually, if you disperse, as you did with your choice of sites, you can find magic. Thank you so much on behalf of Country Stripe for sharing your love of the Lake District. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Well, journey's end. We have travelled many hundreds of miles in that little bongo, Mark. And uh, that was lovely, a little potpourri of uh, special places around the National Park. Oh, yes. A very warm, engaging experience. And Richard is that kind of person. 
He values places. He loves Cumbria. I love the idea that each of these visits to one of the letters of the alphabet was a a mini adventure, a kind of displacement of everyday life. You go and see what happens and it might be meeting somebody or discovering some bit of history that you weren't aware of. I loved his uh, evocation, particularly of Nibthwaite and, um, you know, goes to a lot of these undiscovered places, doesn't he? Yeah, even somewhere like the unloved Cleetamore, which is loved by locals. You've got that smile on the face of the locals, which he, he really warmed to. There is a heart beating heart everywhere. Yes, that's true. So the book, we should just uh, tell listeners, if you want to get hold of the book, if you just type Bongo Nights 2 into Google, he's, uh, Richard's website comes up at the top of that list. Out of all his 26 chapters, Mark, have you got one that you would pick as your favourite, do you think? Martindale is my favourite of all those destinations, and uh, he evokes it very well. So, our usual housekeeping, we're on episode... What episode are we on, Mark? 46. Goodness, we are approaching the big 5-0. 45 previous episodes at www.countrystride.co.uk. We are Lonely Souls, so if you want to uh, befriend us on either Facebook or Twitter, where are we, Mark? Country Stride 1. Normally there's a few nice pictures of walks and stuff that we've done. At the moment there's just pics of us sitting in our spare rooms looking at Zoom. <laughs> uh, wh- what have we got planned next? Uh, well, well that's, that's an interesting one. <laughs> <laughs> that's the question of the age, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I think Hayden's Wall is probably the most likely. Okay. Uh, We should also flag up a new, exciting part of the Country Stride website. If you would like to support us financially, uh, Mark and I both do this for free, you can now buy some merchandise, including uh, the new editions of your Cicerone books, Mark, via the Country Stride website. So uh, if you feel like chipping in, supporting us, but also grabbing some fabulous uh, published material or gifts, then um, there is a way now to do that. Uh, I think that's it. Oh, sorry, Mark. What do you? Yep. I was going to say that, of course, we're at the latter stage of producing a special guide to the Gateway Village of Threlkeld at the moment, which will be, a, in effect, the very first Country Stride companion guide. Yeah, yeah, we're looking forward to that. And in fact, I'm doing some of the walks locally from my house to check all the instructions. So it's a, it's a terrible job, but somebody's got to do it. We don't want destructions, do we? (laughs) (laughs) Right, well, I think that's us wrapping up, isn't it, on our first country stride of 21. And we look forward very much to broadcasting a load of proper walks for you this year. But for now, we will keep recording Zoom chats with people who love this county as much as Mark and myself. And we will see you next time. Thanks a lot for joining us.